Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Today's episode begins a bit of a critique, uh, not really of Rhett and Link and their stories, but sort of really more of the general way that we approach apologetics and supporting the faith and supporting our faith. Uh, if you're interested in the stuff, please listen carefully and don't assume we're saying something that we didn't actually say. Joel and I are trying to talk about something that requires a kind of careful way of speaking and can easily be misinterpreted. Um, as we explain further, it'll hopefully become clearer and clearer what we're getting at. So if it seems we're being, you know, fideistic or surrendering to say contemporary views of science, so on and so forth, uh, you're, you're kind of misunderstanding. Um, but just kind of give it a little bit of time. Uh, if you'd like more information, uh, on this podcast on tactical faith or to check out our blogs and so on, please go to tacticalfaith.com. You can email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. And again, wondering has an underscore where the O or the A is. You can follow us on Twitter at wondering wisdom. Again, where the O or the A would be in wondering, there's an underscore. Uh, all of us here at Tactical Faith are volunteers. We're donating our own time and money to do the minute what ministry we can. If you're interested in supporting us, uh, please pray for us. Send us questions, send us suggestions. And if you're able, feel free to toss a few dollars our way as well. Again, check out tacticalfaith.com for more information. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I are going to continue talking about, uh, sort of talk, talking about Rhett and Link's spiritual deconstruction. Uh, their videos, uh, the guys with Good Mythical Morning and Ear Biscuits podcast. Uh, they... We're, our goal isn't really to criticize Rent and Link. We've talked about this already, but we're going to a little bit. But but our goal is actually to criticize, you might look at it this way. Our goal is to criticize the, the Christian, the, the way that we Christian we Christians have thought about and talked about our, our faith or talked about the faith, uh, which has opened the door to a lot of, maybe a lot of confusion about how we're to relate to truth how truth relates to Jesus, how truth relates to scripture, and so on and so forth. And so uh, today we're going to focus in specifically about one element with Rhett's, uh, Rhett's video or Rhett's podcast, depending on how you how you uh, consumed the information, um, uh, particularly one sort of element in his explanation of his deconstruction that we think uh, exhibits a kind of error in his thinking, but it's not just him. It's an error kind of in the way we do this. So you're going to hear us. Uh, I think a lot of what we're going to be doing is a, is also a criticism of apologetics itself. Not necessarily a criticism of Rhett. It's more of a, uh, maybe he's a, an unfortunate bit of collateral damage. Um, maybe we'll see, we'll see where we get here. But uh, part of what Joel and I are trying to do is also we are talking about apologetics and we want to present a different way of thinking about apologetics um, that really I think a lot of people do almost naturally. A lot of Christians just naturally do, uh, but we want to try to formulate it. So in any case, uh, let us let us begin with this idea uh, of looking at Rhett's presentation of his deconstruction. And let's see if we can, uh, there's a lot of points in it, but Joel... What do you think is one of the, perhaps the central issue that Rhett has, central problem, you might say, that Rhett has in his, in, in the way he de described his deconstruction, deconstruction of his faith? A central problem. Um, 
<laughs> the I, I guess if I had to reduce it to a single idea, it's um, his understanding. Well, not just his. This is just kind of how we tend to think about um, what is truth and, and how do we relate to truth. Um, the way that we typically relate to truth is we, we look for certainty or, you know, and if, if we're going to look, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the way that philosophers frame it, uh, the, the idea for, you know, years and years with, you know, some exceptions, but is, is justified true belief and justified means that we can be certain of our belief. Um, and that, you know, that's what knowledge is. And, and so, you know, we, we, we look for ways to um, put, put our, put things into propositions that we can state. And then we state, and then we can say, are these propositions true or are they, are they false? And um, well, and let me, let me hold true. you up right there. Let me hold you up okay. right there. So some people, and I'm just going to assume that our audience may not be ter- terribly familiar with philosophy. What is a proposition? Isn't that when you're asking someone to marry you? <laughs> a, a proposition is, is another word for a statement. Um, a statement that can be true or false. Yes, yes. That can be true or false. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a sentence. It, it's putting things into words. Um, and so when, I, when we talk about propositions, we're just saying, um, you know, here, here's a sentence. Is this sentence true or is it false? Right. And, and th- there are sentences that aren't propositions like, ouch, or go get me a cup of coffee. Those aren't propositions because a question and a command or an right. exclamation is not true or false. It's just a right. command or a question or whatever. So when we're talking about propositions, we're talking about like beliefs that you hold about things, right. judgments about things or something like that. The car is blue is a proposition. I hurt my foot this morning is a proposition. Ouch. You ran over my ouch because you ran over my foot with a, with your blue car. Saying ouch isn't a proposition. Okay. So I just wanted to clear that up, make sure everyone knew what we're talking about. Great. Um, so when so when we talk about these propositions that can be true or false, um, we're, we want to be certain of them being true or certain of them being false. Um, you know, so, so sometimes, you know, people will, will throw out, you know, the, like a proposition like, um, if you dig down six feet on the planet of Jupiter, you will find... Uh, that is that the center of Jupiter is um, liquid chocolate. And that has a truth value that's true or false, even if we don't necessarily know what that truth value is because we've never landed on Pluto. Um, and I still say Pluto is a planet for the record. But um, You just said Jupiter, though, so you're really confusing me. Oh, I thought I, I said think you said Jupiter first. But right. Pluto, yeah. Anyway, um, can, how can we be certain of things? Um, there are a lot of things in our life that we lack certainty about, um, but we kind of need to, to function with without that certainty. And so we we accept things as true. Um, you know, if you, like for instance, if you ask me, um, do I know how my engine works in my in my van? I'm going to say. No, but I know that it works and I'm happy that it works. And even I can't explain to you how, um, you know, I, I, I accept that the engineers who designed it knew what they were doing and, and I kind of build off of theirs, their, uh, knowledge and, and ability. But 
there are plenty of things that we lack certainty about. However, when we come to our, our beliefs about some of the big questions of the universe, we often want to submit them to the standard of being certain of their truth or falsity. Um, and, and, and I, I, I want to say being sure, being, not being certain of something being true doesn't mean it's false. And not being sure that something is false doesn't make it true. Um, there, there's this, this, there's, there can be uh, different emphases. If someone's looking to show that it's not false, that is a different thing than showing that something is true. Um, and, and that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a, can be a, you know, you might be like, hold on, you just said, you know, not false and that's a double negative and that, that's, that means true. And that's not necessarily the case. We can, we can go into looking at our beliefs and say, I'm going to look to find ways to shoot down the objections to my belief. Or we can go in and say, I'm going to go in and look for ways to, for, for evidence that supports my belief. Now, in the first way where you're looking to shoot down the evidence, uh, 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 the objections to your belief, what you're doing is you're giving your belief the benefit of the doubt because as long as you can shoot down the objections, you can hold, there's nothing that keeps you from holding the belief, whether or not you have sufficient, extensive, we'll say extensive evidence for the belief you hold. However, if you're looking to support your belief, you're kind of giving the uh, benefit of the doubt to the objections and making, and if your, your belief can't stand up to the objections, whether the objections actually are good objections or not, if your belief can't stand up to the objections, then you release that belief because you've given the objections the benefit of the doubt. Okay, that's interesting. So um, it seems like maybe, I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things you said that that would be, that we need to kind of reflect on, I think, a little bit. This may seem like an odd question, but why are we concerned with certainty as human beings? Maybe this, this, this is an obvious, you don't have to go in a long philosophical rant about this, but maybe you do, but... Why are we so concerned about being certain about things? So my, my slightly cynical answer is that it feels good. Um, that if we can say we're certain of something, then, then it's kind of settled and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, if, if we're not certain, it kind of leaves the door open for, for us to have to possibly continue to wrestle with, with it. Um, and so if, you know, the, if you think about it, you know, our relationships, you know, are, can, can we have that absolute certainty about our relationships? Well, no, because, you know, people are always growing, evolving, um, and, and, and become, and, and we can always learn more about people. Um, but there's an element there where it's like, there's something good about uh, lacking the certainty there. Um, because, because if you have it, if you can ha be certain about a relationship, then you've kind of reduced it to a static thing that no longer can grow, no longer can develop, no longer can influence you and in, in, in your development as well. 
Yeah, I feel like certainty is sort of like it can be considered compared to a comfortable armchair. It can be compared to a house being cleaned up. It can be compared to something being boxed up nicely. And in each one of those cases, the result is lack of action. Right. right. Uh, the only way to keep the only keep your way to keep your house clean is to make sure nobody does anything. Right. And and if if you've seen the the, the Lego movie, um, you know the the dad wanting to to glue all the Legos together so things are are set and that things are the way that they're supposed to be. Um, that might be a good good metaphor for certainty. Um, certainty wants to get things set in place, wants to make it so that um, you don't have to adjust anymore, that there's no uh, interaction with things, but it, it's it's set. And then I can kind of build on that because I have my set uh, set ideas, um, but it, it, it's not it's not necessarily it's not really looking for an interactive uh, element. It's not uh, relational, um, but there is something very uh secure in uncertainty. And I think okay. as humans, we desire that. Yeah. And there's, so that's, that's great. So, so here's, here's maybe one element cause you, you keep bringing up the relationship thing and it's probably, it's largely because interactions between persons are fundamentally incapable of being put into the language of certainty because certainty seems to me to apply to I'm, I might get us into some danger here. We might need to do a little bit of explanation of, of some terms here, but it applies specifically to objective facts. Now we can't be certain about all objective facts, but there are, maybe I shouldn't say objective facts. I, when, I, when I'm using the word objective, I think I'm using it differently than most people are going to use it. Um, it but let, let me, let me just compare it. Uh, an objective fact is something like, I don't know, my height, which of course, I don't know, it's a little bit higher when I wake up in the morning from what I hear. Nevertheless, I'm and not that tall. A little higher when you ask him than when you actually measure it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm somewhere between, I don't know, I'm close enough to six foot. Let's just say six foot because I'm over five. <laughs> so, but, uh, but if, you know, uh, my, my height or something like that is, is an objective fact, but, who I am is not. I don't know how to put that in into an objective fact, um, and it's partly because I am I am a subject who is constantly in interaction with the with people and the world around me, with my own experiences, such that a person is always changing. And so, and you so you could tell if if I want to explain someone with certainty, the language I would use. This is the way I always talk about this language I would use, and it comes up all the time. Is something like, well, that person's just a fill in the blank or uh, s- something along those lines where you narrow it down to a series of claims about someone. But we know that that's improper because that's the very ground of things like racism, sexism, or just hatred of anyone. If you want to see, a, if you want to know a marriage that's falling apart, listen to the way the the husband and wife talk about the other person when they describe them in these simplistic terms that, well, she's, you know, she's a, she's just a whatever, even if it's a nice term, it can be, it can be dangerous because whoever that person is, if you really know them, if you really know anyone, you realize that, that because they're a subject, there's, there's someone in there experiencing the world, interacting the world that you can't nail down precisely what they are. Um, And so, you can't even describe it. And so it can't be held with certainty because it's not a proposition. It's something like 
knowledge by acquaintance. I mean, I mean, there's there's an element of, um, you know, we kind of need to kind of need to put people in boxes uh, just because there's so many people in the world that we interact with and we, we kind of got to navigate the world as, as best we can. But um, on the flip side, we don't say we have relationships with those people. Um, it, it's kind of, it's almost like if you want to have an actual relationship with someone, you have to take them out of the box you've put them in and figure out who they actually are. And, and if you kind of want to end a relationship, whether intentionally or not, you kind of put someone in the box and once they're there in the box, you, you've got them figured out and you don't need to, to, to try to learn more about them or understand them deeper because you, you've got it figured out. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way of looking at it. Cause we really do have to put people in boxes because I can't have a, an individual I thou Martin Buber personal relationship with every single person. It would, I don't have time for it and I would probably just die. Uh, so, okay. So that's great. So, um, certainty there are places where certainty is appropriate and we should perhaps pursue it as best we can there are places where certainty is in fact inappropriate mm-hmm. to pursue certainty is dangerous so for example if i'm looking for my wife to prove beyond any doubt uh that she loves me or is faithful to me or something like that that she's not a russian spy or whatever I will always be, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm looking for evidence to support my belief that she's, that she actually cares for me and she's not just using me. If I get into that state, my relationship with her is dying, is in the midst of, I'm killing it. I'm killing it by a demand for certainty. Mm-hmm. Does that make, okay. So that's, that's kind of what we're getting at in terms of the relationship. Um, well, one, one way to think of it is certainty is appropriate where propositions are appropriate. And so if, if things can be expressed as true or false propositions and that, that encapsulates the, the totality of it, certainty is okay. But, when, but if we're talking about relationship, certainty is, is a goal too far um, that, that it becomes destructive. Um, okay, well, l- let me press back just – or let me ask you a question. So what about the proposition, my wife loves me? That's a proposition, right? Fair. So may, maybe a better way to say that is propositions that aren't about relationships. Um, or, or contain words that we all understand precisely what they mean. Exactly. Like love. I mean, the way, the way my wife loves me is not the way other people, other wives love their husbands, right? I mean, I'm just so awesome that she loves me more <laughs> than any of your wives love you. So, no, I mean, but, but there's, there's, I mean, the way love manifests in every relationship is different. I mean, there's some, there's some category, there's some elements that are, you know, love is patient, love is kind of blah, 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 blah. But, uh, but there's different elements in the way the relationships are. Um, and so even love itself is a very, maybe that's part of the element because love is a relational term. We can talk about love, but it's really hard to say what it is. Right. Um, how do I know when it's love? I don't, well, sorry, I could go through all the songs. I think I was Van Halen. Um, uh, how do I know what love is? I want you to show me, you know, anyway, uh, uh, something about baby don't hurt me as well. So, uh, um, okay. So, so that, that kind of explains that. So, so maybe propositions about relational elements themselves are not, they, they tend to be fuzzy. Well, okay. I mean, in, in a, in a sense, 
they 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 are true or false, you know. But the the truth or falsity depends on a precise definition or a particular definition of love that we we have said that there's we're not willing to put forward that definition um, because it it you know we can maybe give a definition of a part of love and then we can say with certainty yes this relationship does fulfill that element of love but we can't find a clear way that explains the totality of love therefore it's almost like it's not a proposition because we can't we can't give a truth or false value because it the word love does not submit itself to be declared true completely true or completely false yeah i don't i don't even know if we could say that it that we could know with certainty because i think if you wanted to doubt you always could it seems like certainty is when you're forced into a position where you can no longer doubt. Well, maybe a better way to say it is when I say that there are certain elements of love, it, we can we can talk about the um, the types of things that a loving relationship would often include. So, um, you know, affection toward toward one's spouse um, or, um, you know, that they that they were there you know when they see each other at the you know after work you know they exchange a hug and a kiss kind of thing like oh yeah yes we can say with certainty that they check that box but we would all agree that we can't reduce love to to those kinds of things of which we can be certain of okay okay that's good so so let's let's talk about that cuz it seems like it seems like what Rhett is doing and this is this is going to get us into tricky territory and we talked we've already talked before the podcast, we talked a little bit about how easily, how easy it will be to misunderstand what we're saying here or what we're getting at. Yes. But Rhett, Rhett, I noticed it when I'm, when I was going through his, his, his podcast kind of describing his deconstruction, there are a few things that, a few things that I would consider mistakes in the way that he's thinking, but I don't think these are uncommon. I think these are normal mistakes. And so at one point, he's talking about how he wants to revive his faith, how he would when he when he ran into a situation of doubt, he would revive his faith by reading apologists who defend the faith. And I thought that was an interesting I think that's an interesting way of describing it, even though that's the way people normally think about it. What is faith? Well, faith is. Apparently, your faith is is supported. By the evidence by by the evidence because the f- faith and the faith refer to different things faith is is one person's uh belief trust in god the faith is the list of propositions that uh i mean if we went down to mere christian the mere christian element it would be those without which if you don't believe those you can't believe you're, you can't really consider yourself a christian uh we could right. we could talk about elements of that here a little bit but uh, maybe, but we normally, when we talk about the faith, we're talking about a list of things you, you need to believe, like propositions like Jesus rose from the dead, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he, uh, and he went through this series of struggles, and I just kind of mapped it out. But he said early on that he was uncomfortable because there were young Earth and old Earth, and he was uncomfortable because things weren't as clean as as it should be. There because there's strong disagreement between the young Earth and the old Earth. Christians and he couldn't find a place really where where it was clear that the Bible was saying one thing or the other and he wasn't sure how to interpret it it just wasn't as clean and that was making him uncomfortable nevertheless 
at that time, this is early on, he still believed evolution can't be true. You have to have a historical Adam and Eve because in order to have a historical Adam and Eve, you got, you, I mean, in order to believe in Jesus, you have to believe in historical Adam and Eve, so on and so forth. And then he moved on to evolution is true. And he started saying, well, uh, all truth is God's truth. And so I shouldn't be scared of pursuing it. And then he moved on to, uh, well, there doesn't seem to be evidence supporting a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament. Um, but nevertheless, this, it's just absence of evidence. So I'm just going to focus in on Jesus. Um, and eventually he ended up saying something. This is about halfway through the podcast. He says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it's, it has to be about truth, 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 truth. The Bible has to be true. And so these are some of the, this is a theme that keeps coming up and over again. It has to be true. And so maybe I interpret it metaphorically. Maybe I interpret it in whatever way, but I have to find a way uh, to, to, it's got to be true. Otherwise my faith falls, falls apart. I found that an interesting, not an unusual, but an interesting juxtaposition of requiring evidence and then also talking about faith is requiring evidence, a kind of certainty, you might say, because uh, by the end, he was reading evidence against Christianity, um, not, and, not even and, in support of it. And at some level, giving that evidence the benefit of the doubt rather than yes. existing yeah. beliefs. And you could see this slow shift from Christianity having the benefit of the doubt to Christianity needing to provide evidence to reading evidence against Christianity and giving it the benefit of the doubt. Because Bart Ehrman isn't, I don't know if I should say something this critical, but I love Nietzsche who hated, he called himself the antichrist for crying out loud. Um, sort of. Uh, but, and so I have a lot of respect for a lot of unbelievers, but what I've seen of Bart Ehrman isn't. Maybe a good way to say it is among people who offer serious criticism of Christianity, Bart Ehrman is not looked, looked upon as a good resource. Among, there we go. That's uh, a good way of doing it. That, that those who are critical of Christianity um, would not would not uh, recommend Bart Ehrman as a source to look to for yeah. for criticism. He seems very ideologically motivated. That's that's kind of the sense I have. So, but anyway, so so there's this emphasis on certainty, evidence, effort, emphasis on evidence, and the faith in Jesus is tied to it, and that does not seem unreasonable, right? If I were to find out that they found Jesus's body, I don't know how they'd prove it. So that he hadn't ri risen from the dead. You know, I have to look back to Paul in 1 Corinthians and say, well, I guess this faith is useless, right? Um, if uh, everything in the Bible was proven wrong, how could we still believe? Um, how do we respond? We've talked about certainty. We've talked about, we've talked about the relationship element. What, is the, what has he got wrong here? And how should we think of things? Should we think of things differently than he has? Yes. <laughs> um, All right. Well, well thanks for listening. <laughs> so, so there, there's an, there's an element in which giving the benefit of the doubt shows, shows where your, your, uh, your values lie in the, the way you're interpreting the world. Okay, let me let me stop you there because we're about to shift into something that's pretty interesting, and I, I I want us to set up the contrast of what we're doing here. Okay. So normally, an apologist would come at Rhett's Rhett's video, and there's plenty of people who can do this. If you're interested in that, uh, there's tons of resources out there. In fact, Rhett even actually gives some of the resources. Um, 
normally what they would do is they would go point by point. They would agree with his basic perception that certainty, a kind of certainty is important and evidence is very, very important. And here's the evidence that undermines the conclusions you've come to based on what you've researched. So let's start with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, I don't know, here's proof that Bart Ehrman is a bad thinker, which I've already thrown out there, which I probably shouldn't because I didn't provide any evidence. Nevertheless, uh, let's just say I could provide a bunch of evidence. Uh, I start throwing NT right at you or whatever. Um, and then and then we take step back. So, you know, we start so showing that maybe I could prove that evolution isn't true. I could show that it has uh, has terrible problems. Then I prove that or that there's support for the Old Testament, uh, uh, archaeological and so on, support for the Old Testament. And then I go back and I prove that the earth is young. And I, I just step by step, depending on how far you want to go with apologetics or what your particular perspective is, the normal apologetic approach is to provide evidence against what he said. Evidence or an argument. Yeah. That's not what we're going to do. Not exactly. In fact, I might get myself into trouble here a little bit, but I think that general approach is is part of the problem. Right. That's sort of what we're that's sort of what we're getting at. That's so it's and I'm not saying I'm not being anti-intellectual, which I mean, seriously, if you think that then you don't know us. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not trying to be anti-intellectual. Lives in 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 education that uh, that would be a very hard accusation to. Yeah, to yeah. Uh, but I'm not trying to be anti. We're not trying to be anti-intellectual. Um, we're not trying to be. We're not trying to suggest that uh, that apologetics is useless. Uh, right. We're not even. We're not even arguing that a particular that particular brand of providing evidence is useless. I think it's very very useful and very important. What is what is the problem? Is the central evaluative outlook or the center cent, central set of values? So you might put it. I could put it really, really simply, but it's sort of rough and ready way. I refuse to have faith in God until He proves Himself to me. Yeah. Doesn't that seem like the center, the authority has shifted? Right? Isn't God the authority? When did I become the authority? And God have to prove Himself to me? Right. Lord, we want you or rabbi, we want you to provide us with a sign. And Jesus says, uh, wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds like a cop out. Well, that just shows that you don't have the the intellectual wherewithal to respond to these criticisms. Maybe. But that's not that's not what we're trying to say. And that's what we, we don't want to be heard saying that. Right. Look, apologetics doesn't matter. Just have a lot of emotions at Jesus, and you're going to be fine. That's not what that's not what we're saying. No. Um, uh, but there is something here, I think, in Jesus's response to the to the to the demand for a sign. But he does give them a sign, by the way, the sign of Jonah, uh, which is someone rising from the dead. Interestingly enough, and uh, which brings us to the story of the rich man and Lazarus as well. And one of the interesting things about the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man asks for Lazarus to be brought from the dead and sent to his brothers, Abraham says they, he, they have the law and the prophets. Let him listen to them. And the rich man says, no, no, no. But if someone rose from the dead, then they'll believe. And Abraham says, if they do not believe the law and the prophets, then they will not believe even if someone rose from the dead. Which my initial response to that is always, that's ridiculous. Hmm. 
But if you reflect on it, I think what Jesus is telling in this story is something that's of tremendous importance. And it explains why he didn't just go and do a bunch of explosions everywhere while walking in slow motion away from them to prove that he's the Messiah. Because what he's trying to do is what he's trying to do is get to something that's a little bit deeper than, than straightforward in your face evidence. It's like, or even after his resurrection that he didn't just march into the temple and make a big show of things. Um, you know, he, he, why didn't he? That, I mean, it, I, if, given the way that we typically think about things, I think that is a great question. I mean, but if you look at who he appeared to, he appeared to those who, who were his followers. Um, I think there's something really significant. We'll get into that more as we flesh more of this out. But the idea that we're trying to express is that um, if evidence is your goal, if evidence, if you need the evidence to prove things, then if you don't want to believe, you will find a way to reject the evidence. Um, Right. And so, you know, it's a matter of, so evidence is helpful when people are searching for, when, when people have the right evaluative outlook to receive the evidence. But I mean, you know, you look at political discussions today, people receive evidence and one side hears it one way, the other side hears it a different way. You look at, um, I mean, even something, well, I guess, you know, this is in Alabama, so I, it's not trivial, but something like college football, you know, if, in, in, in the years when, when, you know, Auburn beats Alabama, the, the, the Bama fans have an explanation as to why that doesn't make Auburn better than them and vice versa. Um, even though the evidence is the game that was played, you can take the evidence and go with it in different ways um, that often reinforce what you already think. It is, yeah, very, and- it is very rare to, to be able to receive evidence and have it, you know, tip your scale one way or the other. Right. And this is what we mean by evaluative outlook, right? Because the evaluative outlook is like the glasses or maybe the context, really context, or the, actually the eyes that you have that perceive all the evidence out there. Mm-hmm. And it, it cares about evidence in different sorts of ways. And so what we're suggesting I think is that apologetics needs to take into account the evaluative outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to try to encourage people to shift into a different evaluative outlook rather than necessarily providing it, even though providing evidence can sometimes play a role in that. I think right. it does sometimes play a role in it, but I think what, what, what Abraham is getting at in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when he says to the rich man, even if someone rose from the dead, they, they would not, even if someone rose from the dead, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. I think that's part of what he's hinting at is that, is that there, there's something off in the way they're perceiving things such that the evidence doesn't change anything, which means also that one of the key elements, one of the most important elements about apologetics is not proving that a certain set of facts are true, but to get you to see things through a particular kind of lens. Which, and that sound, it sounds like I'm talking about, it's not about evidence, it's about brainwashing. <laughs> that, but that's not my point. Uh, I, there's an evaluative outlook that underlies even the demand for certainty. 
Right. Um, why should I even care about certainty? Why should I care about scientific evidence? Well, it's because of a particular evaluative outlook that we all, we've all just sort of bought into. And it's not that it's a bad one. Um, uh, and, you know, and I think there, there are, there are ways that it, it, it can be good. There, there are applications in which it's good, but there are also yes. applications that is very destructive. Right. Uh, just look at the church lens and they're talking about human consciousness and you'll see an application where in my view, their attachment to science and scientific kind of thinking creates what can only be described as an aberration in their, tr- in their understanding of the human person. That's my personal opinion, but I'm also right. So, um, the, the, uh, okay. Uh, so part of what Rhett is, seems to be getting, getting wrong is his emphasis on the centrality of propositional truth. He keeps using the word truth, but it's propositional. And arguably when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he doesn't mean he's a proposition. Right. Um, and so even that, when he mentions that, that's important. Now, maybe we don't have to, maybe we, we can't get into this now. Are we suggesting that the Bible is full of propositional falsehoods or that it doesn't matter if it's full of a bunch of propositional falsehoods? Is that what we're or, saying? Or are, are we saying that we need to understand the Bible in the context in which it was written, the purpose for which it was written, the questions for which it was written, um, rather than assuming that we can take our 21st century uh, desire for certainty and evidence and read the Bible through that lens and expect everything to come out on the true side of things. Um, and if not, then, then there's a problem. If you go to seminary or into a school where you're studying the Bible, one of the first things that you that you should be getting is that the Bible cannot be should not be read through a even a post enlightenment or an enlightenment way of thinking about things. You, what you have to do, I mean, if you're going to read any text, if you, if I'm going to read Plato, um, I need to I need to read them against the backdrop of Greek of Greek philosophy of Greek, or Greek philosophy, Greek religion, so on and so forth. If I'm going to read anything, I need to read against the backdrop of, of the situation they were in. And uh, even if you go back to Genesis 1, it wasn't written in a post-Darwinian scientific mindset. Um, and so to see it as an argument, as written as an argument against an old earth or against evolution or even for anything, anything in that kind of realm of questioning, scientific questioning is may be an error, which we kind of got to that in the, in the last, in, in the last podcast, we mentioned that, um, which for me to demand a certain kind of certainty about that is probably going to lead me to a confusion and I'm going to end up missing the point. And, and, and I would, I would say it's, it, it's more a matter of confusion than a matter of being an error. Um, okay. it, it's, it's like, this can be a bad analogy if someone mis- misinterprets what I'm saying, but it's like reading reading one of my kids' books about um, about science or about dinosaurs, or whatever, and treating that as though that's the final word on the issue. That, 
that's not the intent. It's not intended to be the final word on the issue. It's pointing to something different than what a, a textbook, a, a college-level textbook would be pointing to. Um, and so if I try to, you know, if I'm like, if I read my kids a book and I pause and I'm like, well, yes, they say this, but that's not entirely true because we understand that, you know, my kids are just going to look at me and think I'm nuts and make sure that they ask their mom to read their them books, not their dad. Um, and so, you know, similarly, we, we have to understand what was the Bible written for? What was the intent? Um, who was it addressing? What was the context in which it was written? And that's difficult because we're not in that context. And it's very easy to want to read our context into things. And, and sometimes that does work with the Bible. Sometimes we do get two important things by reading it from our context, but we're going to miss the big picture, the big story. If we're trying to read a book that was written 2000 plus years ago through the lens of, of our modern post enlightenment eyes. Right. And, and the purpose of scripture is to point us to Christ specifically so that we might have a relationship with the father, right? In right. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, uh, to the Father is generally how we pray. If you pray in uh, the, cl- the classic way, it's done. But uh, but gen- I mean, it's it's to create this relationship with a personal God, not with an objective God. And that doesn't. I, I do believe God exists. I'm not saying that God doesn't exist. I'm saying that God God is personal. Mm-hmm. God is not a force or a box, a box of power out there that we're having some sort of legal interaction with. And even law in the Old Testament. Uh, Torah doesn't it's translating at law is sort of confusing. It really sort of means instruction. It's meant to to point us to to having this relationship with God. And so for us to to look at scripture and obsess about certain certain kinds of facts certain kinds of facts. We, we there's a bunch of details in here we can't get to. Like is there evidence supporting the Old Testament narrative and so on and so forth? That's not something we're going to get into. There's plenty of resources out there to deal with that. Um but there are certain elements of scripture that that if they didn't take place it's it's a problem if jesus did not rise from the dead then and that's just right in scripture if, if there's no resurrection if he didn't rise from the dead then there's no resurrection if there's no resurrection then we're to be pitied more than all men right that's that's something that has to be an historical fact we can't say that jesus rose from the dead in our hearts or any of that kind of nonsense that's silly I don't even know what that means. I mean, he's still dead. Um, I mean, anybody can raise from the dead and my can rise from the dead in my heart. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, my pet dog from when I was a kid could rise from the dead in my heart. It doesn't change anything. Uh, anyway, so uh, but so there there is an element of of certain kinds of things that 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 if we reject the historicity uh, of them, then we cannot that I, I think you, you kind of lose Christianity and there's no point to all this. How does, this might be a tricky question, but should we be concerned about establishing certainty about Christ's resurrection? Or how do we talk about, how do we, how do we convince her? I mean, a man rose from the dead, right? A fully God, fully man. I mean, the, Jesus being both fully God and fully man is a little bit weird too. I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying that that's that that's. Uh, let, let me let me let me ask another question. I'm going to make this a two part question. 
Okay. Uh, you were used to being quizzing, so you know about this. <laughs> it's it seems like there are a certain set of things that we can believe without we can give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Most people can. The Earth is the Earth is spherical, r- roughly. Um, uh, the things in, the basic things of history happened. These are things we all sort of agree to in common sense, and they're given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, there's no burden of proof put on them that JFK was assassinated. There's no burden of proof that they're, that he was killed by one guy. There might be a little burden of proof there, but, uh, um, so, so on and so forth. So that's kind of, that's kind of how we think there's a general set of things that we sort of all just kind of agree with. Well, it seems like a guy rising from the dead and then sort of to use atheist sort of language magically appear to, to a bunch of his followers for a time. That seems not ordinary. It's an extraordinary event. And don't extraordinary events, don't they suddenly have the burden of proof? And if there's the burden of proof, the benefit of the doubt is to reject it because it's extraordinary. Right? That's what we do with most stories. If somebody started telling me that people in the next town over were rising from the dead, I'd be like, you need to give me some evidence. That's a little ridiculous. Um, uh, and if they showed me a video, I'd say it was, you know, somebody did some fancy video work. But if, uh, and this kind of goes against the whole thing I was saying with the rich man and Lazarus, right? Because right. even if somebody wrote from the dead, didn't change, didn't change anything. But uh, if the, if it's an extraordinary event, doesn't it require the burden of proof? And so shouldn't we be concerned about strong evidence for Jesus's resurrection? Otherwise we should reject it. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. Um, I would, the evidence is helpful. I mean, that there are people who are out there doing good work, um, making. We just, talked to, we just talked to one last night. Yes, yes. There's there's a podcast on uh, Tactical Faith Radio Network that's coming out uh, with Gary Habermas that we were involved in. Um, but at, at some, so let me use an analogy. See if see if this works. Um, you know, we we talk about you know there's there's lots of of Chuck Norris jokes around. You know, like. Um, you know, one, uh, uh, contemporary, uh, applicable one that I heard was, um, the coronavirus ran into Chuck Norris. Now it's in quarantine for two weeks. Um, and you know, all, all these, like it. all of these Chuck Norris kind of things where it's like anyone else does these things and we'd be like, huh? But when, when Chuck Norris does it, like, oh yeah, like that, that makes complete sense. And I think that's, th- this gets back to the question of who is Jesus and, you know, for, for, you know, some, some, you know, random person off the street raising from the dead, like that would be an extraordinary thing that we, that, you know, it would be right to doubt that, or it, it would be very understandable to seriously doubt that. But when we look at who Jesus is and understand, you know, th- this guy was, was doing miracles. He was, he was, he, he was turning the world upside down the way that we understand the world. He was turning it upside down. When you think about that, then the idea of him raising from the dead, especially if you look at the way he died, he, he the way he died was not the way you would expect someone with power to die. You would expect that they would go down fighting and that you'd have to, to you know, hold them down, you know, but he, he willingly gave himself up. That when you start looking at all these, all these things about who Jesus is, suddenly it's like, and he rose from the dead, that, that might not seem, that doesn't seem so absurd anymore when you look at, when you understand who we're talking about. 
Yeah, there's so there's there's a big whole set of connections here I'd love to make because I think it's an it's serves as a kind of evidence for Christ's resurrection that relates to this idea, right? Because you, you see, you know, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, so on and so forth. The idea here is that generally speaking, we wield the power of death over one another. That's right. that's that's how we do everything. Death, exclusion, all those things are actually sort of related to death. We wield them against one another. Our empires wield them against one another. We wield them against each other, so on and so forth. There's that. And you look at Jesus and everything he's doing is undermining that. This whole approach to everything is undermining this, this sort of wielding of power over. And people keep trying to make him king and he just ref- he refuses. I'm not going to be that. The Jews were expecting a Messiah who would come with the sword, conquer the Romans and overthrow them. And Jesus just doesn't do that. And uh, again, this is something that comes up a lot with me, but but I've taught a class before, and, I've, and my argument was something like this. If Jesus didn't conquer the Romans, then he's not the Jewish Messiah. And your conclusion is, well, then he must not be the Jewish Messiah. No, he did conquer the Romans. He conquered all empires because all empires exist by the power of the sword, by the power of death. What did Jesus overcome? What was he teaching his entire life? He was constantly acting against disease against sickness, against exclusion, in some of all these things, he was acting against death. And part of what he did was even when he was, when they, when they arrested him and were putting him on the cross, he could have called the power. He had power. He could have brought down who knows? I mean, he could, he could have just crushed everyone under his feet. In fact, I think this was sort of the temptations that were put to him when he was in the wilderness, right? Take control possess, bring things into being that you would have brought into being so that you may possess all the kingdoms. And Jesus says, I mean, the first thing is turn stones into bread. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with eating. Well, the idea is that it, it seems to have this idea of taking control and making things the way you'd have them. And you do that by, by grasping, by taking the power, taking control. And if you think in grasping, think a little bit of Philippians 2 mixed with some Genesis 3. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. He made it. He who is in the very nature, God took the very, took, became a servant, even to the point of the death, a shameful death of a criminal. In so doing, he never fought death with death, he, which is what we do. He fought death with life, love and life and inviting in and faith. These things are all bound up together. De- de- fighting death. With it, and I, and this is, this is where there's going to be a str- I'm making a leap that we, I can't explain in this podcast. The obsession with certainty is an obsession with a kind of power that lines up with the power of death. I could explain this. I might lose all of you, but those two things are related. And it doesn't mean that that kind of power is bad. Not, not in its entirety. Right. It doesn't mean that it's, there's a place for it. It's when it claims it's, it's a truncated way of approaching life. When you, when you make that the whole, that's where the problem is. That's where the problem lies. And so, uh, there's a place for certainty. There's even a place to wield the power of death, but it's, but it's always limited and constrained by life. 
So you might say, for example, you can wield the power of death for the sake of protecting life, right? That, that would be an example of life constraining the power of death. It's not about going out and creating empires and, and blah, 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 blah. It's about protecting justice as best you can, right? And we get, you know, there might be some who'd say, no, you can never wield the power of death. And we call them pacifists. And that's a reasonable way to approach things as well. But you could also argue that the, that the power of death can be wielded as long as it's constrained by the power of life. The point I'm trying to get at, instead of talking about politics, the point I'm trying to get at is Jesus is actually presenting the way of life. Right. The way with a capital W of life. And life is truth. Life is, is bound up with truth. And so Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and it's perfectly reasonable. Of course he rose from the dead. He's the only, he's the only human ever not to wield the power of death. Uh, only human. He's the only, but he was, he was full of life himself. We are still under the curse. You know, we're still under the curse because we still die. And so, uh, but that's what he's presenting. So it's perfectly in accord with what he's saying. And it's not just that it's in accord with what we recognize as true. We realize there's something wrong about the way power functions in this world. There's something wrong about the fact that I have to have, I have to use a gun to get people to, to help one another, right? I don't have to, but I've not been doing that lately. But uh, no, but th that there's, there's, there's something, you realize that there's something wrong with the kids when you have to punish them to do what they're supposed to do. They're not, they're not how they're supposed to be. <laughs> we should be caring for one another. We shouldn't be stealing from one another. We shouldn't be ripping each other off. We shouldn't be trying to kind of connive around. We shouldn't be living that way. We know that, but they're all, someone always needs to bring a, a sword to make sure that we're doing it the right way. We know there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with the whole way that creation is bound up in, in death and decay. And then we're just full stop. Hopefully there's a heaven afterwards. Or maybe, maybe Christ and rising from the dead has opened up the door to all things being made new. It makes sense with what we feel, with what we recognize ethically. It makes sense with the way that Jesus lived. So I'm saying this is a different... What I'm trying to do is I'm saying maybe your your lenses are wrong. Right. Here, put on these lenses of reckoning you, and you already sort of have access to this. This isn't something unique. It's not. I'm not brainwashing you into thinking some radical idea that you should go down to some island and take some Kool Aid. I'm just telling you something you already know. You're just you keep setting them aside because you're obsessed with scientific certainty. Right. But look, there's another way of seeing things that doesn't reject science. No. Uh, but that's that's a different discussion. I mean, do, should we accept evolution or not? That's a different. That's sort of a different discussion. There's elements that that, that come into play in this, and so that's sort of an example of what we're trying to get to. That th there's a there's an emphasis on life, and that life should have. In fact, when we talk about living happily ever after, that's a reference to. It seems like love should conquer should conquer death and disease and pain and suffering. When we when we say that we're going to love each other forever. There's an element in our poetry that's pointing to a truth, right? And I'm, I'm trying to pull out Chesterton and Lewis and these other guys. But there's an element of that that is true. Life and love should overcome. But it can't because science. Eh, maybe science isn't everything. Maybe certain, maybe this kind of, anyway, scientific style certainty. Maybe that's not, maybe that's not everything. Yeah. And so to... Uh, appeal to one of my favorite philosophers, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, he talks about the, there being forms of life and that we, we speak in certain ways in those forms of life that are nonsense 
in other forms of life. Like if I, um, you know, if I tell my wife that I love her, that's appropriate in the form of life of, of me being a husband. Um, but if, if I were to tell, um, you know, one, one of my, uh, one of my students or one of my coworkers that I, I love them, uh, they would probably look at me a little weird and I probably would get in trouble. Um, because that, that's not the appropriate way to talk. You, you, could, you know, it would be more appropriate to say, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, or I enjoy working with you or something like that. Whereas if I said to my wife, I really appreciate the things you do and I enjoy working with you, she's going to look at me and be like, I, what's going on? Right. Um, so that's, we, we have to understand where to use certain things and 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 it's 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 almost not to to take the lens metaphor farther it's almost like we really need bifocals you know that, that to to help us see things a certain way in one situation and to see them in another way in a different situation and 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 part of that is because i think we we've just been trained to see things a certain way that we need we need to to have our vision um, broadened and we need to see with more than one lens because we, we, we need to, um, to have a bigger way of seeing the world. And we're, yeah. we're, we're going to, so we, we, as we start talking about this idea of, of seeing the world in certain ways, having lenses, we're going to get into that in, in upcoming podcasts and upcoming episodes. Um, you know, the the what we're what we're wanting to to get at here is we're we're saying that you know the what Rhett has expressed is completely understandable if you go down as if you're going down a certain path if you accept certain assumptions about what truth is how we understand truth and how we are to approach truth then you can see how he ends up where he ends up and it makes sense. But what we're saying is with apologetics, with Christianity, instead of playing that game, maybe we need to say this, this is, this game doesn't make sense. Like, or this game, this game misses out on some important, important things that, that make life much more interesting and rich. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, I know there's lots of strategy to checkers, but at the end of the day, there's just a limited number of moves you can make uh, in checkers. You start talking about other board games, you know, whether chess or, you know, we can get into more contemporary ones like Settlers of Catan or, or Pandemic, you know, as, which is appropriate for right now. Um, But, but there, there's a much broader range of, of, of moves that you can make that, um, that are worth, that have value and make things more interesting. And I would say maybe get at a better, fuller picture of reality. Right. That's good. Yeah. And so that's, that's what we're going to start, uh, hopefully becoming a little bit clearer about specifics of what we're talking about in terms of evaluative outlooks. But a lot of it, I think the idea of recognizing that maybe we're playing the wrong game and not just Rhett was playing the wrong game. I think a lot of people, we have this element where we have this personal relationship with Jesus and this thing they keep, this is what they keep talking about there. 
have a personal relationship with Jesus, and then we have this intellectual side, and those two really have little to do with one another. Except the intellectual side can undermine my relationship with Jesus, or it can, it might be able to help maintain it, but the intellectual side doesn't feed the relationship with Jesus. It's simply a an on-off switch, it feels like, but they don't really relate to one another. The question is, how does the relationship with Jesus, how does that shed light on the intellectual? It seems like it's a one-way street. If it's true, then I can have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus, which by the way, that's not, even if you believe it, it doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. If it's false, I can't have a relationship with Jesus. But there's nothing about the relationship with Jesus that sheds light on the intellectual. Right. And that seems to be weird for someone who's, who claims that the relationship with Jesus is central. And, and and especially if we take Jesus's claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then it seems like he he's going to help us understand truth in a way that we're not going to be able to comprehend on our own. Yes. Maybe we relate to truth in a very, and I, I want to start invoking Plato because he started talking about this stuff a long time ago, um, about the nature of ultimate truths is not something we possess. It's something we become acquainted with. Let's stop there. So we're going to move, we'll continue on. We're going to talk about different elements of these guys' uh, deconstruction stories, but we're, our goal is ultimately to try to talk about apologetics and maybe even present a little bit of this apologetic, not simply talk about it, but hopefully present some stuff that if you watched Rhett and Link's thing and you're feeling a little concerned or whatever, maybe this will this will help bolster. But it just we're, we're, our goal is to try to give you a way of understanding that Christianity is not merely a set of doctrines. You have a set of doctrines and then you decide to make a commitment. Christianity is a whole different set of lenses on the world that I think reveals the world in a richer, deeper, more magnificent way than any other lens. Amen. That's what we're going to get to. Um, and uh, we'll hope you'll continue with us. And we will uh, hopefully hear you next time. But for now, or you'll hear us next time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> getting distracted by something but uh uh anyway for now this is travis this is joel thanks for listening have a great day